Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Hash is sponsored by CypherTrace, a MasterCard company. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to The Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, happy Friday, and welcome to The Hash. You're on Coindesk TV. I'm Zach Seward. I got Jen Sinassi. I got Adam Levine. We're going to tackle today's news, hash it out, chop it up, have a little fun with it. <laughs> and that's what we do here. So thanks for tuning in. I have the first story of the day. We're talking about ETH, the native asset of the Ethereum blockchain. Ether balances on exchange, they're nearing all-time lows. This comes as staked ETH surges following the Chappella upgrade and as the decentralized ecosystem of decentralized exchanges and other DeFi apps perhaps matures a bit such that getting ETH out into the on-chain world is a bit more attractive than parking it on exchanges. I think this is a super interesting data point, a high signal piece of news, although perhaps a bit drab to some listeners. Let's talk about it and why it matters. I'm going to toss it straight to Adam for his thoughts. Yeah, so the interesting part sort of about, about the world of crypto when it comes to yield is that people have always wanted to mine. The first conversation, every single person coming into the space for many, many years, and I think still today for a lot of people, uh, was, hey, I heard that I can mine and I can use my hardware in order to make some money, right? And so I think that that's really what we're seeing here. What Ethereum effectively did is as, you know, as like Bitcoin mining and as many types of mining have become really professionalized, kind of buttoned up industries that require large capital investments, the move over to proof of stake has created the opportunity now for people to get that same type of feeling where they're not really doing anything active themselves. It's not like they're like working at a job or anything but their money is making money. And again, in a world where JP Morgan, the largest bank by depositors in the US, is offering 0.01% interest, it's pretty appealing, honestly. And now that it seems like some of the bugs have been worked out of the system after a couple of years of upgrades, you know, I think we're, we're to it. So that, that's my read on it, is that this just makes sense given the current environment. But Jen, what do you think? Yeah, so I think, I don't know if we can look at the chart, but it, I'll give some time to control to get the chart up on the screen. It's interesting. We see the, a drop happen around 2022, the end of 2022, when the FTX fallout happened, right? And that wasn't mentioned in the story, but I think it's 
some good information to bring up that when, when FTX imploded, people started taking their currency, taking their money, their assets off chain and looking at hardware wallets and looking at other things to do with it. After FTX, you know, we saw a regulatory crackdown. We saw Kraken, Binance leave different jurisdictions. So I think that that information um, has something to do with the numbers that we're seeing. But definitely, Adam, I think you are absolutely right. People are staking their ETH. The one question I have, though, is staking ETH that profitable right now? The story says, you know, people are opting maybe to to stake their ETH, make some passive income instead of trading it. Is it like how profitable is it? Hey, yield is yield. And I think the comparative sort of uh, framing that Adam put out there relative to other sources of yield in the traditional financial system, it does become quite attractive, right? When those yields are high, we saw it with DeFi. Some of these yields were unsustainably high, right? These 20% yields promised by Anchor and other protocols, right? That was not sustainable. We saw uh, you know, the, bad, the bad times that came with that. But ETH as sort of a native yield-bearing asset of the crypto ecosystem really is a game changer with its shift to proof of stake. And I think we're seeing economic actors, both big and small, kind of act on this new set of incentives, right? Uh, the fact that you can park this asset and again, get some of that yield that's quite a bit higher relative to tra- traditional sources of yield out in TradFi, I think is very, very attractive. And I think the whole Chappella thing is also really, really relevant, right? This was the upgrade that allowed people to, uh, to withdraw their stake to ETH that, that had been locked uh, into that contracting, the beacon chain for a couple of years. Uh, there was a lot of speculation as to whether or not the outflows would outstrip the inflows. And I think what we're seeing here as indicated by this piece and others is that that certainty that you can deposit this ETH and take it out at will has really made the inflows grow much quicker, like more quickly than the outflows, right? So you have this net increase of people who are staking this asset to get those yields. And I think that's really strong for the Ethereum sorry, economic system going forward. The fact that these large stakers are seeing this as an attractive place to generate yield on their crypto assets. So yeah, you know, Ethereum itself is just a fan, you know, kind of a fascinating culture. We talked about Zuzulu yesterday. Uh, a fascinating platform in terms of the various things that exist on it. And now sort of this native staking functionality and native yield bearing functionality is quite, quite interesting to watch out, especially in terms of this data as it relates to ETH on exchanges. Uh, Adam, tossing it to you. Yeah. One other kind of point that I think is worth noting here is that by staking ETH, there's effectively two types of speculation that you're engaging in at the same time, right? You're engaging in speculation on the price of Ether itself, which again, for a lot of people, like the best trading strategy that's come out for many of these larger tokens is just to do nothing and to be effectively treat your trading career like you're in a coma and not able to do anything because it insulates you from some of sort of the swings that can push you to make a choice that you might later regret. It's not a good strategy all the time, but it is a strategy that's worked for a lot of people. And so on the other side, so you've got the like just locking up your ETH is positive for that. And if you, it can turn into more ETH, And then also, again, we're looking at prices right now in the Ether world of around $1,800 per token. That's a price in comparison to close to $5,000, around $5,000 is where we peaked with this. So if you think about it from that perspective, again, it's both more ETH and then also speculation on the price of ETH and insulating yourself from making short-term decisions about it, which is, again, an interesting dynamic enabled by sort of the upgrade that, uh, that Ethereum went through. Jen? Adam, I'm going to ask you a question that you are going to hate. Can we expect the price of ETH to go up because of this? If we look at the chart, it looks like that we should expect that. I mean, it means that, again, like if markets are based on supply and demand, then what you're seeing here is a substantial amount of supply that's increasingly being sequestered in a place where it can't trade, which means all other things being equal. If demand remains the same, but supply goes down, then price should go up. 
Now, that's not always how it works, <laughs> but it is, I, I agree, the dynamic uh, is there. And I think more importantly, it's a question of when does the next bull cycle start? Because it seems obvious that the next bull cycle will start. And again, as we get into that, I think that's where predictable appreciation will really come in, although it's hard to see that up front. Zach? I think that's it. We're going to go talk about some more market stuff, but crypto as it relates to the macro world. So I'm going to toss it to you. What do you got? Yeah, absolutely. So next up, Bitcoin and the broader world of cryptocurrency are a whole lot of different things depending on who you ask. And that's nothing new. Since the very beginning, there's been competing and often conflicting narratives about just what an internet native form of money is actually good for and what it is and what it trades like. Is it an inflation hedge? Well, a lot of people thought that early on, but today, not so much. As the token uh, collecting population has expanded from kind of the very earliest cypherpunks to Wall Street eventually, the correlation between traditional and crypto assets grew as well. But that relationship has started breaking down. After 18 months of crypto markets following official job and productivity gains, basically like a Wall Street index, yesterday's latest round of official statistics had a pretty minimal effect. So I think it's a great time to ask ourselves what narratives are still standing up? And more importantly, what's the next story that we're going to tell ourselves? as our age of monetary mania continues. Zach? I have no prediction on that. I'm going to boot that one. I'm punting straight to Jen. But Jen Don't let's, punt it to me. I'm punting. I'm I don't punting. know who made this whole segment about markets. I, I love setting these Adam things up. I got nothing. Yeah. Adam, I got nothing. Just tell no. us. The Break it down nope. for us like we're five years old. What does this <laughs> actually mean? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that's the point is that, again, like uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency seem like there are a lot of different things. And that kind of the, the differentness about them depends on, are you looking at it on a short-term timeframe? Are you looking at a long-term timeframe? I think one of the mental models that I use is that Bitcoin in particular and crypto broadly are kind of like a cork floating in a giant sea of money, right? When the tide goes up, then they float right up with it. When the tide goes down, they float right down with it. And that has meant that they've acted a lot like Wall Street over the last couple of years because so much about monetary policy has been driving, I think, a lot of kind of action across risk assets as the U.S. central bank sought really to take control of markets rather than let them decline. So I, I think that's what it is. But again, it, it's, a, it's, it's a hard question, Zach. All right, I'm going to ask you a question like I'm a five-year-old or a five-year-old, I guess, crypto degen. Is this another way to say that the decoupling is real, that the decoupling is happening, that Bitcoin is acting independently of the broader markets? What would you say on that, Adam? I mean, I think that we need to see more about it. I think that this is a single data point. And I mean, I, I mean, you guys know that I'm super skeptical about the official statistics that come out about these things anyways. The job number in particular has, I believe this is now the 14th consecutive overperformance relative to expectation. That's in contrast to the last record, which was four. There were four, like, uh, which were four consecutive uh, increases. This one also has been notable in that there have been like rear looking revisions where they'll actually be like, oh, this is an amazing number on the day that it comes out. And then like two months later, they're like, actually, that number was much worse than we thought it was. And it would have been bad if we told you the real number up front. So I think that, again, like, I don't know if it's about cryptocurrency or I don't know if it's just markets decoupling generally from the assumption that this data is good. But there's something going on. And again, like as the kind of banking crisis continues, I, was, uh, I track uh, First Republic and it sounded like 29 cents uh, per share down more than 99 cent, uh, 99% over the year so far. Like there's just all kinds of weird stuff happening. So it's kind of hard to ascribe correlation to really any of it. 
I didn't mean for this segment to just be me talking, guys. I but like it. I, appreciate I actually it. like it. No, no this I'm is good. This learning. is fun. We like this. Yeah. We're learning. We like We're to learning learn. here. This okay. is good stuff. And now when the good news happens in the world, all the crypto people can also feel like it's good news instead of being like inverse <laughs> to exactly sad, <laughs> right? sad job numbers. Sad, sad job numbers. Yay. That, yeah. was, that was rough That's there a for a while. Word. It was a weird world. All right. Is identifying and mitigating crypto risk a challenge? Do you need help balancing compliance issues with the need to protect against fraud? CypherTrace, a MasterCard company, can help. They work with banks, governments, regulators, exchanges, and other crypto entities to identify risk, trace the movement of crypto funds, and help comply with global regulations. Visit CypherTrace.com today for more information. Well, a group of celebrities involved with FTX are being sued in a class action lawsuit. Basketball star Shaquille O'Neal is one of those celebrities, but until recently, he could not be served. Joining us now is Adam Moskowitz, managing partner at the Moskowitz Law Firm, who is representing FTX investors. Adam, welcome. Good morning. Welcome. All right. Let's start off by talking about what happened Tuesday night. Give us a recount of the events. All right. There's so much going on almost on a daily basis. The Shaquille O'Neal story is silly. It's actually a side story, which we, we wish we didn't have to deal with because it's costing us over $100,000 to just serve the guy. And it, it's sort of, it's unheard of because most celebrities want their lawyer to just accept the service of process and it's over. That's the way it's been done with all the FTX celebrities, but Shaquille didn't want to. So on Tuesday night, we knew he'd be at the game. We knew he'd be at our arena. And we've had many people calling, complaining about other crypto NFT scams, which he's been involved with. And we filed a new class action for Astrals against Mr. O'Neill. So we had somebody go into the game and serve him with both complaints. Why has Shaq been so good at dodging these process servers? Like, in your opinion, what has made him uniquely tricky to pin down? This is a very public and very large man out there in the world, on TV all the time, why does it cost you so much money to serve him as papers? It's crazy, and that's a great question. When you sue a corporation, I can just send the complaint to the registered agent, right? So any corporation is easy to serve. So you don't serve individuals that often. When you do, they have lawyers like Tom Brady did, and those lawyers typically will say, just send me the complaint, they get an extra 30 days. The lawyer that's representing Shaquille O'Neal he represents two other defendants in our case. And he said, of course, don't serve them personally. Just send it to me. So I have no idea. Why did Shaquille O'Neal tell him not to accept it? And with his security team, he has enough money to keep security guards 24 hours a day so he can sort of physically be away from anybody trying to serve him. And it's sort of it never happens in any of these cases ever because they're going to get him eventually, you know, and we got him. But maybe it became a gimmick for him. Maybe it became and he's an officer of the law. He's a deputy. He's a deputized officer. And we actually sent money to his police department to serve him. So I have no idea what his endgame was, but it's extremely extraordinary that these facts ever happen. You, you brought up the Astral's case, the other class action you're representing people in who are suing Shaq for his NFT project, claiming that they are unregistered security. 
Regulators in the U.S. haven't said NFTs are a security. Can you tell us a little bit about the basis of the case? Yeah, you know, we've been called by a lot of these celebrities who say they have nothing to do with crypto. And then sure enough, we find out they're making a lot more money promoting other deals. This Astral's deal was really strange because Shaquille did it with his son, who was the head of investor relations and his business partner. So every day they're going on to the internet, posting their icons, talking to the group saying, I'm always going to be there for you. The value of your avatars are going to go up because I'm Shaquille O'Neal. You can come to my DJ Diesel concerts and I'm going to live in your meta universe. It's crazy. And then all of a sudden when FTX hit, he was gone and they freaked out. You know, they didn't want this lawsuit because it then makes the value of their avatars less. But after a a couple months, what are they going to do? After the first week he was missing, he posted a meme of Leonardo DiCaprio. And it said, I ain't effing going anywhere. He hasn't been heard of in two and a half months. So these people had no other choice. And we said, we will take him on. And if he's going to avoid us and avoid them, you know, so be it. Bring it on, Shaq. I mean, you don't see any of these people on any of the TV shows. Where's a single celebrity for the past year? Get on your show and say what I did wasn't wrong. They can't because these are unregistered securities and they did promote them. So the only defense they have is basically either don't catch us or there's no jurisdiction over the court, right? So if you're a California resident and I sue you in Florida, they'll say no jurisdiction. Well, yesterday we had a multi-district litigation panel hearing in Philadelphia, and those judges are going to decide if all the FTX cases go to one or two locations. If that happens, there's no jurisdictional arguments because there's nationwide jurisdiction. So I don't know what Tom Brady and Shaquille are going to say if their argument of there's no jurisdiction applies because we know that these are unregistered securities. SEC has said the tokens are unregistered. Nobody's saying they're not. And did they promote them? Of course they did. So I think we're getting closer to recovery for all of the victims for Voyager, FTX, and then eventually Binance. Mr. Moskowitz, why do you think that celebrities that promoted FTX like Shaq and Tom Brady should be held liable for that? In an interview with CNBC back in December, Shaq said that essentially he was just a paid spokesperson for a commercial. And that seems pretty different than, say, Kim Kardashian promoting Ethereum Max on social media without disclosing that it was a paid endorsement. It seems like the paid nature of that endorsement is implied when it comes to something like FTX. And nobody has accused FTX trading on it of being some sort of restricted activity. So, I mean, what's, what's kind of the thinking here of how these dots connect? Oh, absolutely. And it's crystal clear. In 2017, we're talking six years ago, the SEC wrote to celebrities. It was an open letter. And it said, we know some of you like Kim Kardashian and DJ Khaled and Floyd Mayweather are starting to promote crypto products. If we decide, the SEC, that these are unregistered securities, and you're a celebrity, and you're promoting them, you will be held liable. You could be held liable for promoting an unregistered security. And under the FTA and FTC rules, that if you don't disclose how much you're getting in compensation, that's also a violation. And that was Paul Pierce about three weeks ago. He was sued and settled with the SEC because he said he was promoting it, but he never said the amount. You know, they, they treat investments. Obviously, an unregistered security is an illegal security. So the laws are very strict. You're not just a paid spokesperson. If you promote an illegal product, 
you are liable. It's that simple. And here, because FTX was based in Florida, we're using the Florida securities law for everyone in the country. And that securities law is crystal clear. If you promote an unregistered product, you are liable. There's no defense that, oh, I was just a paid spokesperson. Why didn't Shaquille O'Neal look into this? Why didn't he ask one question? Are these unregistered securities? I mean, everybody knows today that these tokens are non-registered securities. There's no dispute today. I want to I want to go back to the NFT question because I think we started talking about NFTs and then yeah. uh, we were talking about tokens. So I want to separate them. The class action for the NFT project, you're saying these are securities, but we haven't heard the SEC come out and give us definitive language about NFTs being securities. So can, can you just tell us how you're thinking about that? How can you say that they are securities? Yeah, good question. I mean, NFT started as pieces of art, you know, electronic pieces of art. And that's what they were supposed to be. So it's a harder question. And it's something we're going to have to develop. But when you look at an NFT, you look at the Howey test. That's the Supreme Court test saying, is something a security or not? And basically, it's if I buy it, and it goes up and down based upon the efforts of others, then that's a security. So with Astral's, that's exactly what they said. They said, you can buy this NFT, and it's going to go up or down based upon the efforts that Shaq does mainly in promoting these products. Why is his son called, quote, the investor relations? Think about that. I mean, that's kind of illogical. You don't have an investor relations in a company unless you have securities, unless you have investors. So there was pretty much no discussion that these products weren't going to be treated like securities. They're going to go up and down in value based on the efforts of others. So while some NFTs may not be securities, I agree. And this is a new area that the SEC is just getting into. When you look at the facts of this particular NFT, there's no doubt in our mind that it is a security. So going back to the FTX case, uh, you know, so Chair Gensler has said everything other than Bitcoin looks kind of like a security, has yet to distinguish which ones are included in that statement, including ETH, the native asset of Ethereum, which is second largest cryptocurrency by market cap, wouldn't specify that. So are you asking the judges in these class action cases to apply the Howey tests to the various assets that were listed on FTX? And then if that's determined that those, including Bitcoin, where a security, then Shaq in this instance would be guilty of the alleged violation? Is that what you guys are asking the judges to do? Good question. We're asking the judges to declare whatever we need in the most narrow sense to be a security. We don't need all of the products. So every person who invested in FTX, every person automatically got put into the interest account, right? The, the YBA, because it was based on Bitcoin. It goes up and down. So our question is, are those interest accounts, all of them, a security? You don't have to look at all the individual tokens. You just have to see, is that interest account a security? The answer is it is because the SEC wrote to BlockFi, FTX, Voyager, and Coinbase and said, we think these interest accounts are securities. So stop selling them. So Coinbase stopped. BlockFi paid a $100 million fine, FTX went bankrupt, and Voyager went bankrupt. So we're not asking for everything. We're just asking the court to interpret, are these interest-bearing accounts for Binance, FTX, and Voyager? 
quote, securities under the Howey test. We're not asking for more than that. And last week, Judge Moore in our FTX case allowed us to file an amended complaint, which has 200 more pages because we found so much more evidence. And we have Dan Friedberg, who is the former chief compliance officer of FTX, helping us. He's settling with the case and he's giving us information, which is helping us prove the claim, like that their Miami office, all the way back to 2011, organized all of the ambassador celebrity program because they wanted to bring people to the Miami arena and see the FTX sign because their local guy, Avi Dresner, who ran their office, that gives us immediate credibility by just visually seeing the FTX arena. That's why Miami was the focal point. But yesterday we had an MDL hearing and some of these cases may be transferred to California. There's a great judge, Corley, and she may handle maybe the hedge funds like Sequoia and the banks. And maybe the judges in Miami will handle the insiders and the promoters. But we'll know in the next week. So things are moving quickly. All right, Adam, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll have to just wait and see what happens with both of those class action lawsuits. We should also note that Coindesk reached out for comment from Shaquille O'Neal and the Kaseya Center, but did not hear back from either party. Zach, take us home. Okay. Thanks for being here this week. That's it for the hash today and for the week. We appreciate you as always. I'm Zach. That's Jen. There's Adam. Thanks to our guest, Adam Moskowitz, as well. We will leave it there, and we will talk to you next week, starting on Tuesday. Have a nice long weekend, folks. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 